I will say this, this is actually our second time worshiping with Hope. Uh, my family and I had the privilege of being down here to celebrate a family member's birthday uh, over the Easter weekend. And so we got to worship with y'all on Easter Sunday this past spring. And so thanks for being so kind and welcoming to us. Thank you for that wonderful welcome, Derek. But uh, today we're going to do a sermon that's a little bit out of series and sequence. You're starting something new uh, next next week. And so we're going to take a look today at a series of Proverbs or selections from the book of Proverbs. Now, the book of Proverbs can be hard to read. They can be fun to read. They're incredibly practical. But the book of Proverbs is really concerned with making us wise men and women. Wise men and women. To be the type of people that become wise in God's world. And here's why. Because the majority of our life, the sort of moral rules that we... Obviously, we live our life by can seemingly not seem to apply. And so what do we do when we want to make decisions? The book of Proverbs helps us. And here's the thing, though, about the book of Proverbs. In an era that is really focused on technique and just tell me what to do, the Proverbs can be profoundly maddening. You know why? Because they don't tell you what to do. Instead, they shape you. At their core is character. That's their aim. To make you the sort of men and women who make the right decisions. To make you the sort of men and women who are developed and shaped by character so that you might live faithfully and wisely in God's world. That's what we're going to look at this this morning. And I'm excited to be able to do that for a topic that is near and dear to my heart, sadly. And I look forward to reading that with you in just a moment. Can we together sing and ask God to now help us to open our hearts together as we sing this song, Speak, O Lord, asking Him now by His Spirit to come and to prepare our hearts to hear what He we would have to teach us this morning. Let's do that. Let's stand as we sing. If you will uh, take a seat, if you're able, and uh, turn your eyes to your bulletin on page 7. We're going to read this compilation of the Proverbs given to us. You'll notice the theme right from the very beginning. It has to do with the topic of envy. Envy. Why in the world will we take a look at envy? I hope to explore that with you in just a moment. But before we do, let's read together this selection of Proverbs. From, um, from the, the, You'll find the references there at the bottom. Here they are. Do not envy a man of of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. 
A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before, this says jealousy, that's perfectly right, or it could say before envy. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. This is the word of the Lord. I mean, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask, pray and ask him now to help us to understand his word. Lord, we've already sang it, and we now ask that you would hear our prayer, that no matter where we're at today, whether we come in here after having known you for many years, some of us excited to hear from you, to be in your presence, to be in the company of our fellow brothers and sisters, others of us, Lord, coming in here despairing today, Wondering if you really hear us, if you're really with us. And we ask that you would, O oh Lord, um, that you would comfort us and that you would encourage us this morning. And we ask this all in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to do something really quick. Um, there's, a whole, there's a car beeping out there. And I'm going to be really embarrassed if it's mine. So watch this. I'm going to pull this out and make sure it's not mine. And if it is, we're all going to laugh together. Nope, it's not. Okay. Well, I'm going to leave that as it is. Okay. Sorry, whoever's car that is. I mentioned the book, I mentioned the book of Proverbs, and we're going to read this, but I'd like to start, uh, look at it as the morning goes on, but I'd like to start with you by sharing you a story. Though it never, though he never saw it coming, his desire for the gifts of another drove him mad. This is the realization that the viewer is left with when watching the life story of Antonio Salieri unfold in the 1985 best picture, Amadeus. The movie's so profound because, because it so clearly demonstrates the deepest and darkest conditions of our heart. Maybe you've seen the movie. Set in the 1700s, in the late 1700s in Vienna, it's the story of the relationship between the composer, Antonio Salieri, and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Salieri, the court composer in Vienna, had long desired and even prayed that God would gift him, that he would make him, right? That he would make him a wonderful composer. If he would, Salieri would devote his life unto God. But you know who shows up on the stage? Mozart. The Mozart. And with his incomparable talent and skill, and in so doing as he did this, it crushed Salieri's hopes for greatness and renown in Salieri's own eyes. You see, in turn, Salieri, his life showed all the symptoms of a heart captured by, here it is, envy. Envy. How? Well, he undercut Mozart. He, he sought to sabotage him. And eventually he even played a role in his death. Later in Salieri's life, envy would never be healed in his heart. And after attempting to take his own life, he is admitted to a mental asylum where he sits at a piano with a priest nearby. The priest acknowledges that he too 
right? He too had some musical training earlier in his life as a boy. So in an attempt to see if the priest knows any of Salieri's compositions, the elderly Salieri begins to tickle the ivories and play a few bars. And at each one, the priest confesses that he doesn't know them. So one more try, here is what he does. He plays one more, a little riff, and at that moment, the priest's face lights up. It shines, and he says, Ah, yes, I know this. That is wonderful. And he even hums the last few bars, and he says, I had no idea that that was you. And Salieri responds, It's not. That's Mozart. You know with the story how it rolls out. His envy has eaten him alive, rotting him from the inside out. Now listen, here's the point in all this. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of envy. Most of us have some sort of vague sense about what it is. And if we do, we often view it as no big deal. But here's the thing. The Proverbs could say that that you're absolutely wrong and you you couldn't be more wrong. That envy in the heart of an individual is actually toxic. It rots us from the inside out. Why? It's going to tell us, the Proverbs are, that envy is a crushing character vice. And that it spends most of its life hidden in us. And so most of us are unaware of envy's presence and its destructive power in our lives. So this morning, the Proverbs are going to bring us face to face with what William Shakespeare called the green-eyed monster, right? The ancient Greeks and Romans actually spoke of envy as an eye problem, a problem with what the eye desired, though it likely wasn't what you thought. In fact, the original name was invidia, taken from the Latin word which means to look upon in a hostile manner. So... This morning, using the rubric of an eye disease, I would like for us to take a look at envy and how the gospel meets us, and how Christ meets us in the midst of it, by taking a look underneath these three headings, the condition of envy, the symptoms of envy, and then the healing of it. Can we do that together? And here's my great hope. My hope is, is that we might not see then with green eyes, but with clear eyes. Clear eyes about how wonderfully kind and gracious our God is to us in Christ Jesus. That's my great hope for you this morning. Let's begin. Take a look with me this idea, the condition of envy. It's in the text there. It f- falls underneath verses 331 and 24.1. That's kind of where I'm going to spend it if you're following along from your device or Bible. And let me just sort of begin by describing and defining what envy as the scriptures mean it is. Envy as I'm seeking to define it today is something different than jealousy. It's something different than greed. It's something different than covetousness. All those things are intimately connected. But in these texts, in fact, the same word actually gets translated, as I mentioned earlier, jealousy and envy. They're closely related, but jealousy, as you might know, as we use it, It's primarily about having something, and then what? And then having a fear of losing it. You might think of a jealous girlfriend or a jealous boyfriend in that instance, right? And as far as covetousness is concerned, Rebecca DeYoung, you found a quote of hers earlier in your bulletin. In a book that she wrote called Glittering Vices, she points out that envy and covetousness are similar, here it is, in that they desire what something else ha- someone else has that we lack, 
But where covetousness is unique, it is, in, it is unique in it having a particular object. And envy is more severe. It's more deadly. It's more lethal. Envy is concerned with the rival not having it too. If you've ever had children, you've seen envy on display. I don't just want that toy. What? I don't want you to what? Have it. There's envy. Listen to what the young writes. She says, The covetous person delights in acquiring the thing itself, while the envier delights in the way the redistribution of goods affects her and her rival's relative positions. Thus, it gives the envier satisfaction to see her rival's good taken away, even if she herself does not acquire it as a result. Have you ever thought about that? I don't know about you, but that is deeply embedded in my heart. And I love what the writer Dorothy Sayers says. She puts it this way. Envy is the sin of the have-nots. And it's a destroyer rather than have anyone happier than itself. I love this line. It will see us all miserable together. Right there. There it is. Why does envy do this? Why does it do this to us? Why does envy shape us this way? Because here it is. Envy is not primarily about stuff. It is about identity. That's what I'm going to try to press in on you this morning. That it's about identity. Let me show you how. In other words, it isn't primarily about what we have, but it's rather about who we are. And let me show you what I mean. Take a look at these texts together. Did you catch it there in those verses that I mentioned? These texts, 331 and 23, show us this. That envy is always other-centered. I'll just find it here on your text here. It says this. He says... Do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways, presupposing what? That an individual could long for, long for that man of violence in his ways. Again, about halfway down. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord. And then lastly there, the eyes of men are never satisfied. Right? The picture there is, is that envy's gaze is always on others, and it's playing the comparison game. Envy needs needs comparison to survive. And this is where we're going to need to walk through some thick weeds for a moment so you really get the substance of what I'm trying to say this morning. It doesn't just play the comparison game. It looks at others' skill, others' stuff, or others' status, and then makes a value judgment, as it were, about the self based on those gifts seen in another person. He said again, it looks at the skill, the stuff, the status of another, and then makes a relative comparative judgment on the individual's identity based on what another person has. So the idea is this, the more or better you have, the more or better you are. In short, the envier believes that the skill, stuff, and status are a definer of personal significance and worth. And therefore, the envier sees the other person and concludes that they themselves are not enough as a person. And so underneath, envy really is a question, friends, about identity and who I am. So in sum, envy stands on two legs. This is what it is. This is the condition of envy. The first leg is that... First of all, who I am as a person is defined by what I have in terms of my goods or gifts or social status. And the second is that that is measured in comparison to other people. 
Thus the writer Francis Bacon, he keenly observed this. Envy is ever joined to the comparing of man's self. And where there is no comparison, guess what? No envy. It is the sin of comparative self-worth based on another skill, stuff, or status. Let me just briefly highlight this by an illustration. Create a scenario in your mind where you long to have that kitchen redone. Right? It's, it's not a dream for many of us. The idea is, is that what? Is that the neighbors begin to get their kitchens redone. The new back, black backsplashes are coming in and they look magnificent. And the idea that the envier has is what? I don't want to be the sort of person that has an old kitchen. Therefore, I'm not a good enough person. Now listen, doesn't that just sound so petty? And yet, doesn't that just sound so true of each of us? It's so real. And that's why this text, these texts are so critical and important for us to begin to take a look at. Here is the thing. Here is the point. Are you beginning to see envy in your life? If you're not, if not, you're not alone. I've mentioned that envy is a hider and therefore we want to take a look at some of the telltale signs of envy when it sort of has taken root into our hearts and life. Remember, the Proverbs are concerned with making us wise. They want you to know yourself. They want you to be profoundly honest with the sort of person that you are and the sort of life that you want. And if you are unable to look out into the future and say, this is the sort of life I want, and find the way, as it were, to create character development in your life to become that or to have that, you'll end up as a fool. That is why we're looking at this. And so secondly... The idea not only of the condition of envy, but its symptoms as well. Like a child playing hide and seek with its parents, hiding behind the curtains, right, in the living room, with her toes popping out from the bottom. Envy, too, has a few telltale signs displaying itself in our lives. How does it do this? In two major ways, I believe. But let's take a look, first of all, at this idea of internal disintegration. This idea, the internal disintegration that envy brings. And I just love this vivid image from um, the 14th chapter, verse 30. You'll find it there about mm, second way in. It says this, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. But catch this image. But envy makes the bones rot. Wow. What a vivid picture of what this does to us in a picture and imagistic form. Envy is one of those capital vices. Precisely, it is capital, it is deadly because it hides from us. In fact, we downplay its danger often in using playful sentences like this. I really envy her dress. Or what? I'm envious of his athletic skills. Additionally, it camouflages itself with descriptors like this. Hard work. You know what I mean by that? It it, it covers itself with descriptors like hard work or academic achievement or even justice and fairness. 
And as a result, we've taken the small little inoculation in the arm against ourselves and its presence, and therefore its destructiveness. And as it hides from us, it rots us from the inside out. Like termites doing their work on a massive structure, envy destroys from the inside out. Hence the picture there, a tranquil heart giving life to the flesh, and envy making the bones rot. Our bones, what? They provide physical support and structure. And the picture here is, is that envy rots them unseen to our eyes. In short, envy rarely shows itself. It knows its own paltriness. Why would it pop its head up? And secondly, relational isolation. Secondly, envy isolates us from other people. Why? Because they are seen as barriers to our joy and happiness. They have what we want, so guess what? They must go down. They must go down. Or they must go without. You see, envy makes, envy in this, in this picture here, makes it very, very hard to rejoice with other people. You see, when they experience joy and delight, and when some really good thing comes into your friend's or boss's life, a a new job, a new apartment, uh, a new engagement, or accolades at work, the question really remains, can you, can you honestly rejoice with them? Can you? Envy makes that incredibly difficult. Because why? Because we want it. And so you begrudge them the good that they have. And what that does is, is it isolates us. Listen to this language from antiquity, from uh, the writer Ovid in his Metamorphoses, where he writes this. He writes of envy personified, and it's this great picture. He says, her, that's envy, her face was sickly pale, her whole body lean and wasted, and she squinted horribly. Her teeth were discolored and decayed. Her poisonous breath of a greenish hue and her tongue dripped venom. And I love this. Gnawing at others and being gnawed, she was herself her own torment. Those of us who know what it's like to look out at the gifts and the talents of other folks and to be green with envy know this isolation. It's an inability to rejoice. It's an inability to be able to give thanks for the good blessings that God has given our peers. And the idea and the picture is, is that it's one that isolates and disintegrates from the inside out. The Proverbs want to make us wise and to see that the way of the calm heart or the tranquil heart is one of life. It's one that gives life and vigor to the flesh. I mean, isn't it so petty, we might say, to think and say this, but the point is, is that if our hearts are at rest, then we rest. But if the eye is green with envy... Let's be honest, it's because the heart is green with envy, then spiritual then social, then relational, and yes, even economic, all areas of our lives begin to melt and to disintegrate. And that's the image, the one of our bones, our femurs, are, are, are just, just melting and falling apart. And the Proverbs want to make us wise men and women who can live faithfully in God's world to see the outcome of the course of their life and to orient our habits and our practices accordingly. Here's the thing. So long as our identity our value, our worth as people are rested in this idea of stuff, status, and skill, your envy will never be satisfied. 
It will always ask for more. I love what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, envy is insatiable. The more you concede to it, the more it will demand. You see, if your sense of identity doesn't rest securely and solely in God's delight in you, no matter what you get, it will never make you happy. You'll be perpetually sour because stuff, skills, and status can never give you what you desire. Joseph Epstein writes it best of the seven deadly sins. Listen to this. Only envy is no fun at all. Think about that. It's no fun at all. Its hiddenness remains its greatest strength. But there's something else in God's economy, y'all, as we've already sang this morning, that is more sure and more powerful, something that can bring about, thirdly, this healing of envy. The Proverbs tell us, look here, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all day. That comes from the 23rd chapter, verse 17. And do you know what this is saying? This is saying this. Let your hearts be continually caught up in the enjoyment of God all the day. You see, fear in that sense doesn't mean be afraid. It means reverencing. It means delight. It means honoring and, and, and worshiping Him. The point is, is that it's one of delighting in God. And what is the result in doing so? Well, you caught it there in verse 19.23. The fear of the Lord leads to life. The idea of flourishing. The thing that we hope that the receiving of what we envy will actually give us. There's only one thing that can give us that, the Proverbs say. And it is the fear of the Lord. And whoever has that will rest satisfied. A soul at rest. A body at rest. So this is telling us the cure to our envy is found in worshiping and delighting ourselves in the one who has made us and knows us and is pleased to give himself to us for what he has done for us and by extension what he has given to us. The Proverbs being, listen, these were already for, these were for the already people of God. These were not the sort of things that you had to sort of nail and check off to get God to finally love you. No, they were for God's covenant community already. They were not for those primarily for those people outside of God's family, but they were for those that were in. They were an expression of His already favor, of His already kindness. And therefore, they have the same promises that we read earlier in Matthew chapter 6. The Gentiles go after these things. But your Father in heaven knows your needs. And you are more wonderful to Him. More beautiful to Him than one flower. That is more beautiful than the whole kingdom of Solomon. And it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. Don't you know that? You see, when you doubt God's provision in your life today, I want you to find a zinnia out there if there's any left. The sun hadn't gotten them. Find some flower. Lay your eyes on it and consider the lilies. Because your Heavenly Father knows what you need. And He is pleased to give you the kingdom. That's the great promise that we have. And therefore, envy always exposes our true view of God. It shows us that we believe that God is stingy or that He's holding out on giving us what we really need. I love the prayer of Bart Simpson that really nails this. Where he says this, Dear God, we paid for all this stuff anyways, so thanks for nothing. (laughs) What a great picture. That's how we often think. We pray for our daily bread and we think God's going to give us the stale moldy crumbs. 
Because we view God as one who is stingy or miserly. But rather, the picture is this, that God is a generous God. So where can the cure for our envy be found? Where can we find the life and the rest that 1923 speaks of? It is found by seeing not primarily in what God gives, but in who He gives. You see, at the very heart of the good news of Christianity is that the God of the universe has entered into our world in the person of Jesus Christ to make spiritual orphans into sons and daughters, to give them a status. And the longer I'm in ministry, the more and more I see folks who really have a hard time believing that the whole reason God and Christ came was to extend train wrecks, extend grace to train wrecks like you and me. Do you know, as long as I've done ministry, I can tell you day in and day out that Jesus loves you. I can tell you till I'm blue in the face. But do you know who the hardest person in the world that is for me to actually say that to? It's the same person it is for you to tell that to. It's you. It's me. It's hard. It's hard to believe that God is actually amazed with us and delights us as a father does his child. And he does that all because of what Jesus has done for us in him. I love what Robert Capone says about grace. He says this, grace doesn't sell. It doesn't sell. You can hardly give it away. Because it only works for losers. And nobody wants to stand in their line. Oh, isn't that true? That's really wonderful. Do you know yourself to be in that line? There's a lot of grace for you if so. Jesus is saying, the gospel always and only shows us that God never saves us as we wish we would be, but as we really and actually are. It isn't about being a good enough person. It isn't about achieving good things. The gospel never says, obey, then God accepts you. Instead, the opposite, you've been accepted, so therefore you are free to obey. And when Jesus died on the cross, he gave us something, friends. Something that lies at the heart of envy itself. Something that envy itself is always wanting. Something that drives us, and it is this, that new status. A new identity. It is the royal identity that Jesus himself has with his Father. That of accepted and beloved. Believe this today. The way, if you are in Christ Jesus today, I don't care if you're 6 or 86. When Jesus looks at you, and when God looks at you, he looks at you with the same favor that he looks on the incarnate Son of God. That is staggering. That's the smile that you have this morning. That's the great hope and the promise that each one of us have this morning. Is that not profoundly good news? And it's in light of that that we can rest satisfied. For we have an identity that doesn't rest on stuff or status. I love what um, San Antonio's now very own... Um, what he, the, the new basketball player that came here, oh goodness, I'm, I'm missing my quote, here it is. Uh, DeMar DeRozan, there it is. He says this about, about his new contract. Listen to this. He says, people say, when you were depressed, this is, they said, when you got traded here, what are you depressed about? You can buy anything you want. And he says this, I wish everyone in the world was rich, so that they would realize that money isn't everything. And this from a man who makes $25 million a year. Now, I don't know about you. I'd like to try that on for a little bit. Just kind of test that out and see. But maybe it isn't like wealthy hyperbole. Maybe there's something in this man that understands 
what life under the sun and the human condition is really about. He's able to speak, as it were, prophetically about the human condition and how stuff is just never going to do it for us. It's always going to leave us empty and broken hearted. You see, our happiness in life, if we don't have Christ at rock bottom, will never ever come from the acquisition of stuff. Let me say that again. Our happiness in life, if we don't have Christ at rock bottom, will never ever come from the acquisition of stuff. Ever. It's a fool's errand. They are too fragile to bear our identity. Only Jesus can do that. Earlier in the morning, I mentioned that God's compassion is our story. That God's compassion is our story. And so the Lord's story of grace and kindness for you, you and no one else, really is enough. I'd like to close by just sharing for, with you a, one of my favorite little vignettes from the Narnia Chronicles, The Horse and His Boy where C.S. Lewis tells the story of a boy, Shasta, and how, though raised as an orphan, he had been protected all his life. And upon seeing this, having come now side by side with the Aslan character, the, the Christ figure in these stories, he asks, that is, Shasta, the boy, why his friend Erebus has been wounded, wanting to know why this has happened. And listen to how Aslan responds. Child, said the voice, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low so that the earth shook, and again, myself, loud and clear and gay, and then the third time, myself, whispered so softly that you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him. No, nor that it was this voice of a ghost, and this is good. But a new and different sort of trembling came over him. Yet he felt glad too. Brothers and sisters, men and women, friends, God gives each of us our story. Not someone else's. And his story for you and for me is one of compassion. One of mercy. One of delight in us. Because he has given Jesus for us. You know what Paul says. That how can he who did not spare his own son, not also along with him, graciously give to us all things? And when we see that, that leaves us with a trembling and gladness, a reverence and joy. What a great picture. Reverence because God is God, but joy because that God is good to us. And therefore is going to give us all that we need in this life. And not just in this life, but for the next one too. And this alone is the power to give you a tranquil heart and rest for your flesh in the end as well to rot the envy that is rotting you. Friends, we can give up our envy. Why? Because Jesus was already given up for us. Do you know that? It's our great hope today. It's our great hope this morning. Let's pray together and ask God to put these things further deeper into our hearts. Lord, for my brothers and sisters who have this character vice in us, what hope is there for us? 
And we've already heard it told that Jesus has been given, yes, even for the envier. For those of us who find contentment to be a hard thing in this life, or for those who are longing for something greater to sort of make our name great, or to finally make a name for ourselves. You have given us all that we need, and we have heard that. And we ask that you would now, by your Spirit, take these things and press them deep and deep into our hearts. And so we ask now that you would do this by your grace. Amen. It's a practice here at Hope to take a few moments to reflect. I don't have a question printed for you, but maybe there was something that stood out for you in this sermon. Maybe a quote, maybe a particular verse that showed up on the page. Would you now reflect quietly? listening, asking God to give you a measure of response to how you've heard him speak to you. Let's do that now. together every Sunday to worship and praise you with prayer and music and reading of your word. We pause now to ask your blessings on our various needs, ever keeping in our mind that you are the creator of the universe, that you are eternal, all-powerful, and all-knowing, and that you created us. Thus we come humbly with our requests. We pray for Young Life and New Braunfels. J.W. Harrell, Director, and Young Life in West Comal County, Luke Pullman, Director. Bless them with your guidance and resources. Bring many students to Young Life and allow their lives to be changed. We pray.